In the Jewish world, the goal of learning the Holy Scriptures was to apply it to all your life. A rabbi's disciples would take upon themselves the yoke of the rabbi's teachings and live by them. You found a rabbi, you asked to follow him, and the Jewish rabbi chose or rejected you. In Jesus' day, the Jews would send their kindergarten-age boys off to school to study the Torah, the law, the way of Moses. There, a Torah teacher would instruct the children until they were about 10 years old. During this time, the Jewish boys would memorize the entire Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, we don't know if Jesus attended such a school, or maybe had a homeschool version of this, but he had an extensive knowledge of Deuteronomy in his wilderness temptations that indicates that he was at least self-trained, goodwill hunting style. At this first level of schooling, most boys would be done. They would become apprentices and part of the productive workforce. Students who went on to further study were those who demonstrated the most natural learning ability. From age 11 to 15 or so, these students would memorize the rest of the scriptures. Jesus would have been qualified for this level, but some scholars believe that his earthly father, Joseph, may have died during Jesus' teenage years, forcing him to work to support his mother. That is speculation. Jesus could have completed his training, but like I said, we don't know. Many students after this level would enter their careers with others, but the top students would go on and apply to a certain rabbi to become disciples, to take upon themselves a yoke. The rabbi would challenge them individually in all they had learned to see if each had what it took to follow him. The rabbi would only accept disciples whom he believed could be like him, to take his yoke, to walk his way, to understand the scriptures in the way he saw them. So you signed up, but you still had to be chosen because he believed in you. And with that calling at age 15 to 16, you would leave your family and leave your friends and follow the rabbi's footsteps, often for your whole life. I think that background will help us as we go forward. Jesus will have disciples. John the baptizer already does. And while Jesus was in the wilderness, John was approached by the religious leaders who are cautiously looking for the Messiah. Welcome to Anakinosis, where we renew our minds towards biblical worldview and the scriptures. This is a show for anyone looking to build or repair their biblical worldview, whether you're 100% comfortable in the current Christian culture, or you feel like an outsider looking in, everyone is welcome. My name is Jeremy Egan. I'm just a guy with a Bible literacy background who has ASD and who thinks a lot about how to think. Today, we're going to look at John, Jesus, and the disciples that followed them. We are in John's gospel today, so what should we expect the author's focus to be on? He's trying to convince his Greco-Roman Eastern European audience that Jesus is the Son of God who is bringing new life to all. And here we have a witness to Jesus in the form of John the baptizer. Now, he isn't dunking people, at least that's not described, um, nor is he sprinkling heads. Um, he's overseeing people dip in the river. His rabbinical presence would serve as authority 
and people would lower themselves into the water. Pastors grabbing and dunking people is really not the image that we should have here. Now, I mentioned this briefly before, but John is going to go all out in Elijah's role. According to Matthew and Mark, John the baptizer wore camel's hair and a leather belt. This is the Elijah the prophet cosplay. The the gospel authors also tell us three locations that John was baptizing people, and they're all along the Jordan River, and each of these are locations of significance in the life of Elijah. We start today in John 1, 19 to 28. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed, and he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Well, we already know people have been asking John questions. John has already authorized or officiated the baptism of Jesus. And then Jesus went away for many days in the wilderness. Meanwhile, the Pharisees sent priests and Levites, servants of the priests from Jerusalem, um, the religious capital of the Jewish world, to ask John, about his authority, about his identity. It would be commonplace during this era for people to be looking for the Messiah. And so they're seeking John's identification because he's drawing such a big crowd. Who are you? Now, what was the biggest clarifying answer? He said, I am not the Christ. So they can be set at ease. This man was not claiming to be the anointed one of God. Remember, these folks are not looking for the peace that comes from the Messiah. They're really looking to protect their own interests. The most confusing answer John gives is, I am not Elijah. Because he looks like Elijah, he dresses like Elijah, he hangs out in Elijah's old haunts, he talks like Elijah, but he says he's not Elijah. Now, why would they think he is? When I see a cosplay Thor... I don't think I'm really seeing the God of Thunder or Chris Hemsworth. I just know it's a dude who likes Thor. So why would they really ask if he's Elijah? Remember, it's the priests that are asking. Priests, even though they've been sent today by the Pharisees, they are part of the Sadducee sect. They don't believe in reincarnation. They don't believe in resurrection. So... It makes it even more interesting. Why ask this? Because their group reads scripture literally, always. So here's the last line of the Old Testament. Behold, 
I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their father, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. The last thing God promised was Elijah the prophet. They don't have any idea how, but they interpret it literally as the actual Elijah of old. Still today, Orthodox Jews leave a cup for Elijah at their Passover meals as they anticipate his arrival before the Messiah. Another side theory, if you're a literalist, you might not think that Elijah died. It doesn't ever say that Elijah died, right? He just got taken away. So maybe they think he got set back down on the earth, either immediately or later on. Well, anyway, John says, I'm not that guy. Now, he may be fulfilling the role and taking up the mantle of Elijah, but his flesh and blood is John, son of Zechariah. The most ambiguous answer John gives is, I'm not the prophet. And that's probably referring to the unnamed prophet that Moses promises in Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 19 that would be like him. We'll examine that later, but they would be looking for a literal fulfillment of that as well. The most prophetic answer John gives is quoting Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5. I am the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. So is he? So, so he's from God, but for what? If he isn't the Messiah, if he isn't Elijah, if he isn't a greater Moses... If he's nobody significant, then he shouldn't be overseeing baptism of people. John says, hey, don't worry. I'm preparing everyone for someone else. Well, who would that be? The Messiah? Elijah? A greater Moses? They all have to go home and sleep on it. Picking up in verse 29, the next day. He saw Jesus coming towards him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Wow. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John reminds the crowd of the Isaiah 53 prophecy. This lamb is God's son. That is an amazing pronouncement, an amazing testimony. And everyone has to go home and sleep on that. Verse 35, the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. It's pausing there. So John the baptizer has now said that Jesus is the Son of God two times in the hearing of his own disciples. 
And when they see Jesus and they hear their master verify him again, a few leave John and follow Jesus. And maybe it's curiosity that first drives them towards him. You know, could he be the son of God? What does this mean? Is he really the Messiah? These are not automatically assumed connections. Jesus becoming king would be a big notification for them. It's apparent that the Jewish people at this time are focused much more on the Davidic royalty than on the messianic prophecies that were highlighting his deity, such as Isaiah 9, 6-7 or Isaiah 11, 1-2. In fact, some scholars believe that the people were looking for two messiahs, one that was a king and one that was a servant, because it was hard to imagine one that would be both. Many people at this time are suffering from messiah blindness. Many people still suffer from that today. Starting in verse 38 here of John 1, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and they saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So Jesus asked these men, Why are they following him? These guys are applying to be disciples of Jesus. How very brave. And Jesus says, come and see. Come and see who I am. My yoke is very different. Now, they could probably already feel that. In fact, one of these first two, Andrew, already believes his old master's words that Jesus is the son of God, and he has told his brother Simon to come along. And then Jesus, we see, immediately renames him. Something that means little stone. And what do we know about these guys? Well, so far it sounds like we have three. Three disciples of Jesus. We have Andrew, we have Peter, and then we have an unnamed disciple. They are willing to drop everything and follow a new thing from God. And that's not easy. In a world steeped in tradition, to be willing to say, I'm looking for God's new thing and I'm following it with my all, that's big. From Andrew and the unnamed disciple, they were willing to course correct when they discovered who Jesus was instead of staying with John the baptizer. It's good to reflect on ourselves then for a minute. What's our response been to Jesus? And I don't mean in the past. I mean today. I know I always need reminders to come and see what Jesus is doing again. There are no promises or no guarantees. It's just minute-by-minute invitation to come along for the journey. That is what this life is all about, choosing to come and see with Jesus. The new disciples stay with Jesus for the night where he's staying. It says it's the 10th hour, which is about 4 p.m., so it would have been too late to make it all the way home on foot, so they get to sleep on these things, this time in Jesus' presence, hearing him snore. And then we get to verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. 
he found Philip and he said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. So we got Philip now. Called to follow. He believes Jesus is special. He believes he's the prophesied Messiah, which is really a beautiful faith. Because the description that he gives Jesus, the description he gives of Jesus to Nathaniel is decidedly unmessiah-like to most people. The Messiah was expected to be a political king from Judea. Jesus is doing this rabbi thing upside down. Disciples asked if they could follow rabbis, and here Jesus is the rabbi asking disciples to follow him. This is weird. This is new, and they are still following. So Philip tells his friend Nathaniel about him, and Nathaniel questions it. And Philip counters with, come and see. Philip is already imitating his rabbi. And then Jesus comes along and does something that kind of blows Nathaniel's mind. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming towards him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathaniel said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Now, that is kind of trippy, but Jesus says, Hey, you're following me because of this one event. You're going to see many, many things. So that's Nathanael's why. What is our why? Why do we follow him? What's made it hard for us to follow him at times? I believe often it's the actions of other followers. Um, just uh, fear of association with things when you don't feel like you fit in Christian culture anymore. Maybe it was something else. But I do encourage you to tell Jesus about it. Oh, be open with your relationship. Because when you're honest before God about your hurt and your pain and you trust him to love you anyway... That's where you truly flourish. So the first five followers is an unnamed disciple, Andrew, Simon Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. And Jesus has one more thing to say to Nathaniel that I think is the clincher. Verse 51, and he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Who is the Son of Man? When I was younger, I thought it was a reference to Jesus' humanity. Like, the Son of God was his deity title, and Son of Man was his human title, but that's not it. The Bible Project podcast really made me re rethink this. In Daniel 7, or Daniel's describing a dream he had, and there were four beasts from the sea, each one terrifying and fierce. The fourth was the fiercest. And these beasts were representative of human empires that trample and devour their own people. And then a throne rises above them with God, the Ancient of Days, sitting upon it. And there's fire judgment placed on the fourth beast, and the other three are stripped from their authority. And after this, a cloud appears in heaven with the Son of Man upon it. He's human. 
He isn't described like a monster, a beast, or an angel. And he goes up to God. He floats up to God and he's presented before him. And God gives this son of man all authority of all the people on earth and everlasting dominion. And all the people serve him in the worship sense of the word serve. God has forbidden the worship of humans. And yet God gives the son of man the position and authority of God and people worship him. So this is a mysterious being who is both God and man. And Nathaniel is clearly a a Bible nerd, a scripture nerd, because he knows the details about where the Messiah is supposed to be from. And I have no doubt he understands Daniel's dreams and visions through and through and has been curious about the Son of Man. Rome is clearly in charge, so this Son of Man would feel futuristic to him. And here Jesus mentions the Son of Man as if he has knowledge about him. I would be intrigued as well. And then Jesus borrows from Genesis 28, 10 through 22 as well. Jacob, the son of Isaac, had a dream of a ladder between the sky and the land, and angels were going up and down it. And when he woke, he believed the place that he had laid his head was a holy place, a gateway to God. And so he declared the house of God should be built there one day. And some mean that to, or some interpret that to mean that he was actually sleeping on Mount Moriah, where the temple was built in Jerusalem. However, he called the place Bethel, which means house of God, and um, the place was a city already called Luz, which was a Canaanite city north of Jerusalem. Anyway, we have Jesus mashing two ancient dreams together. Jacob's ladder that featured a ladder that was a connection between the divine and human, the divine and humanity. But instead of a ladder, we have the son of man from Daniel's dream a being which was also somewhere in between humanity and divinity. The son of man is the connector. He's the bridge. He's the ladder. And I think that entices Nathaniel. One thing Nathaniel struggles with in accepting Jesus as the Messiah is his background. The Old Testament has clear details about the background of the Messiah. And being from Nazareth isn't one of them. He has to be a descendant of David. He has to... And is Jesus a descendant of David? Yes. Um, He has to be born in Bethlehem. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. So how is Jesus from Nazareth? Well, he was born in Bethlehem. He moved to Egypt as a child. And then he settled in Nazareth of Galilee. So these messianic prophecies are really simple ones, like really easy to identify where you're born and where you live. But they're not things that Jesus could control. Um, Jesus, over the span of his life, fulfills many prophecies about the Messiah. I believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. I'm putting all of my eggs in his basket. But I have read and I believe the whole authorized official story of Jesus. And his disciples here aren't there yet. But they are curious. One thing in the way of belief is expectation. The false messiahs that came before Jesus... And a majority of the people in this faith were drawing wrong conclusions of what the Messiah was supposed to be. They craved the future king of Israel, the son of David, who would slaughter the enemy and right all wrongs. They were looking for what many future literalists now expect in an end-of-the-world scenario. Horses, swords, war, and blood. But Jesus was doing things differently than expected. And yet it was there all along, hidden in plain sight, since the serpent crusher promise to Adam and Eve. 
as we continue to build our biblical worldview, we want to think about what in our minds needs renewed. What type of Messiah have we created in our minds? Have we made one that matches our anger and politics? Have we made one that matches our morality? Or are we shaping our minds around who Jesus says he is? Thank you for listening. Anakinosis is a project for anyone, anywhere who's looking to renew their biblical worldview. Next time, we'll look at Jesus' first sign.